Good morning, church. Good to be with you. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is uh, Dave Jacobson and excited to get into God's word this morning. Uh, That's what we're going to do now is we're going to turn our attention to scripture and uh, what he has for us in uh, in God's word. If you um, have a copy of scripture, I'd encourage you to Get that out and get that on your lap. Get that in front of you. If you don't have a copy of uh, the Bible with you, uh, you can find one underneath one of the seats in front of you. If you don't own a copy of the Scriptures, you are welcome to take that home. That's our uh, gift to you. We'd love for you to uh, be able to have that and get into that throughout the week and um, and, and glad to be able to uh, provide that. Um, we are in a series uh, walking through the book of John. It's going to take us the better part of a year uh, or, or a little bit more. Um, we're going to take a pause when we uh, hit uh, Christmas and and. Uh, we'll do a couple other things along the way, but, but we are walking kind of line by line, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph through the book of John. And what, what we're seeing, we're calling it life in his name because the purpose that John, one of Jesus' closest friends, wrote this was that we would see that Christ is the Messiah and seeing the signs that he has done, that he is the savior of the world, and that by believing in that, believing that he is who he says he is, that we would find life in his name. And over the past uh, few weeks, what we've seen is these encounters that Jesus has had with individuals. Uh, we saw him uh, with the, uh, the, the Pharisee that came to him in the night and that he was able to meet with one of the probably most influential leaders, teachers in Israel at the time of Jesus. And, and he was uh, meeting with him. And then we saw uh, kind of on the other end of the spectrum, this uh, Samaritan woman um, that he met with at a well. And then last week we saw this encounter with um, an official and healing his son. This morning, we're going to meet and see another individual. Uh, This time, it's a man who has been lame for um, a long, long time, uh, almost four decades that he's been lame. And one of the things that we're seeing is we see these encounters, these uh, these situations where we're seeing Jesus meeting with with people is that we're getting to see uh, who he is and, and see the words that he's saying and the works that he's doing. And one of the things that happens if you've ever spent time with someone um, is you, uh, by getting to know them, you can often uh, know some of the people that have most influenced them. Uh, Particularly, I'm kind of thinking this morning about um, if you've ever met someone that uh, resembles, uh, particularly like if you've ever met a man that resembles his dad. Um, uh, some of us, you know, we can maybe think about somebody who just like, man, they're like, uh, what do we say? Like a spitting image of, of his dad, right? Uh, recently I met, um, there's a guy that I've known for, for some time, never met his dad. And I was in this large gathering and I saw him and he wasn't by his dad. And I was like, that's, I know whose dad that is. And I even was so confident. I went up to him like, Hey, you're so-and-so's dad. Right. And he's like, yes, I am. How did you, and I'm like, how did I know? Like, I, I, yeah, I think everybody knows that you're, you're dad, right? Because there's, sometimes there's like looks. And, and uh, I have a friend that actually has some awkward encounters because he was um, adopted at a young age. And um, he looks a lot like his, um, his adopted dad. Um, and, and so, but people all the time will be like, hey, you look so much like your dad. And he's like, that's coincidence. You know, it's just, I kind of always like kind of look at him and just wait for the awkwardness because he's, he's gotten pretty good at handling it. But, you know, a lot of times we, we do. We look like our, our dad. Sons look like their dads. Um, but but the other thing is that we tend to act like our dads. Um, I, I've certainly encountered this a few times. I love my dad. I think he's amazing, but he's still my dad. And so sometimes I um, will do or say something. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that's so my dad, right? Like, I can't believe I just said that. That's like, I hear my dad's voice uh, in that. And again, I love my dad. I think he's fantastic. But um, sometimes, you know, it's just kind of surprises. And, and, and you can maybe think of people that, that are, resemble and they look like, you see mannerisms and you're like, oh man, that is just like their dad. And sometimes in getting to know 
know the Son, you feel like you can get to know the Father. Well, not just in feeling like you're getting to know the Father. That's one of the things that I think the themes that we're going to see as we continue on with, with John and even this morning in the passage um, that, uh, that's recorded for us in, in this book is, is by seeing and knowing Jesus, we are getting to know the Father, God the Father. Uh, in seeing the Son, we are seeing the Father. And that's what's going to happen this morning is in this encounter. There's this encounter with this, uh, this lame man, and he's going to ask him a question, which is what we're going to use as the title for the sermon this morning. The, the title is, is, Do You Want to Be Healed? Uh, this is a question that the, uh, the, lame man a- or the lame man is asked by Jesus. Do you want to be healed? Do you desire to be healed? And, and, and the way that he interacts with him shows um, his heart, the father's heart for, uh, for this man. Uh, the big idea this morning, if, if this is helpful for you, I'd encourage you to write this down. It's this, is that I can respond to the heart of the Father through the work of Jesus, his son. In getting to know Jesus, as we walk with and see Jesus, what we're really getting to know is not just Jesus as a man. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. He's part of the Trinity, but he represents and shows us the heart of the Father. By seeing Jesus, we see God. By watching the works that Jesus did, we're seeing the works that God does. By getting to know the heart of Jesus, we're getting to see the heart of God the Father. And so, by getting to know the Son, we see the Father. That's what's happening here. And what Jesus is trying to show, not just this man, but all who would watch, all who would hear, that if you know me, you know my Father. And that is going to be so helpful for us as we want to see and respond to and uh, understand the heart of the Father. We're going to get into God's word now. We're going to begin in chapter 5, but before we do, let me just pray and ask that God would teach us as we study together. Our God, we thank you for these pages, these words that we hold in our hands now. And Lord, we recognize them as your very words to us and for us. God, you have given us your word that we would know you more fully. God, that we would respond to you. Um, Lord, that we would understand Uh, just who you are and the way that you have worked and are working now. And so, Lord, as we study this passage together, as we walk through it, we ask that you would teach us and, God, that we would respond to you, uh, that we would um, hear what you have for us to hear, and, God, that we would do that which you have for us to do. Lord, we ask that you would do this by the power of your Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's look at and kind of begin in the passage together. We're in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and this is what we like to do, kind of line by line. We walk our way through it. So let's uh, jump in. I'll kind of provide a few comments as we walk through it. Uh, chapter one, verse one, or chapter 5, verse 1 says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, after this is just kind of the preceding passage, this healing of the official's son. We don't know how much time. We kind of lose the time stamp at this point. But sometime after that, there was a feast. Which feast? We don't know. But we know that Jesus went there for the feast. There's many feasts that they, the Jews would travel to Jerusalem. And so Jesus, with many others, were traveling to Jerusalem. So now we're no longer in Galilee. We're back in Jerusalem. Verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida. Bethesda, and uh, he had five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids. There was blind, lame, paralyzed. And one man who was there had been invalid for 38 years. Uh, we know where the sheep gate is, um, and uh, you can imagine what the sheep gate was used for, uh, moving in and out those sheep. So that would be the one where you'd want to you know, watch where you step. Um, but near that is where these pools were. 
And the pools, again, it says all these um, uh, people with, with physical ailments would, would hang out there in, 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 hopes, of, um, in hopes of some uh, uh, change and some, some uh, healing and, and, and some help. And so one man who was there had been invalid for 38 years. It says when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And uh, we don't know how he knew that he was there for a long time. Maybe he was talking to him. Maybe he had some sort of supernatural knowledge to that. Uh, but he, uh, he asked him this question, do you want to be healed? Which we would probably consider obvious, but there's a reason Jesus always asks questions. We'll come back to that in a second. The sick man answered him and said, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. Well, I'm going another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. You see, the man wanted to be healed, but the problem was is that he couldn't get to the water when it was being stirred up. And at this point, we might kind of ask the question, well, man, why, why does he need to get in the water when the water's being stirred up? And the answer to that um, kind of, we, we know, but, but we kind of know in sort of this, this, this odd way. Uh, if you scan your eyes back up, you may have noticed um, that there was a, uh, a verse that was skipped over. Notice that in verse 3, it goes straight to verse 5. I'm guessing you probably didn't pick up on that. Um, it, but it says, in these lay a multitude of invalids. That's verse 3, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then verse 5, one man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. And uh, what we see here is, uh, if my Bible has a note, maybe yours does too, if you scan your eyes down to the bottom, it has for me uh, what this missing verse is. Verse 4, it says, Some manuscripts insert, wholly or in part, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Okay. So let's just kind of unpack this uh, for a second. Um, this was a superstition that was believed by these people, that there was, um, that there was some movement of God, that, the, that he would send an angel, and that you could tell the angel was there when the water was sort of stirring, and then if you hurried up and got into the water, the first one uh, that won the contest into the water was the one who was healed. And so this man said that he had been waiting for a long, long time, Right there at that place, trying to get into the water, and he wasn't winning. And so you see here that Jesus comes, recognizing the superstition wasn't going to play out for him, wasn't going to work, and he has compassion on this man, asks him, do you want to be healed, and then proceeds to heal him. And here's the first thing that we understand, remember, as we get to know Jesus the Son, we get to know Jesus, or we need to get to know God the Father, Jesus has great concern for human hearts. This is the first thing that we see and understand is that Jesus has great concern for human hearts. When he comes, he doesn't just see one again amongst the crowd, right? He doesn't just see this man for his ailment or for what he had. He sees his heart and he sees his need and he sees the confusion that he is under. Now, I want to go back. I, 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 we're going to kind of unpack this. Before I do, I feel like some of you may still be kind of thinking about, wait, why is there not a verse 4? Right? Like, why, why did that get taken out? And I just think it's a great time. I want to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole um, because this is helpful for us. We open up and we study this book every single week, right? We, we proclaim, we say that we believe in the authority. We proclaim the authority of God's word. 
And we want to have confidence. We want to have trust in this, these pages that we hold here. And we want to know that this is, in fact, the word of God. So when we come across that and we see a verse sort of missing, we're like, well, what is up with that? So if I could, let me just chase a little bit of a rabbit hole so that we can have confidence in the passage that we're studying this morning. You see, what we, um, I, have, like, I have some news for you this morning. We don't have 100% of God's word. We have 101% of God's word. You see, what happened was, is that the scribes, um, as they were copying copies, right? Because when, when, when the Bible was recorded, it was recorded in original, I mean, John wrote and he sat and he penned, you know, typed up. He would have loved Word. We got to tell him about Word. He would have loved like to have Microsoft Word. Um, but he, he wrote down all these words. And so we don't have John's original copy, the original words that he, what we have is we have copies of copies of copies. We have, they, we call them manuscripts. And when scribes would, would copy those, many scribes were super rigorous, super, a lot of them had lots of regulations and rules and how and what they would do and the way that they would do it and how much they could do at a time and, and all the way that they would, when they dipped their pen and all, I mean, all these things, they were super, super careful. But every once in a while, you'd have either a, a scribe that was tired and maybe missed something, or in this case, I think you had an overzealous scribe. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to kind of help this situation here. Because verse 7 is really confusing if you don't know about the superstition with the pool and the angel and the water. And so here you have overachiever, right, trying to like, uh, do, you know, just help out some people. He records at some point some scribe inserted into this about this angel of the Lord going down, stirring the water, and the people uh, getting into it. See, here's how we know this was added. Um, we have dates on how these, these manuscripts date back. And so the earliest manuscripts don't have this verse. Now, all of a sudden, you go to later manuscripts and it just shows up out of nowhere. So that's what I mean when I say we have 101%. Over time, certain scribes would add things too. We don't really see much missing. We do see some things added. And so now you're like, well, wait a second. Like, how can we trust what we have? That's a great question. You see... Again, we believe that the Bible is inerrant. An inerrant. It's not without, it's without any errors. But we say that applies to the original, in its original authorship, right? In its original writing. Just because it's the word of God, if you and I were to all copy the book of John together, I'm guessing that you and I are probably gonna produce a few errors if you and I were to go copy that, right? Like there's a couple things that are gonna happen as a result of that. So it's not that it's saying that every copy afterwards is going to be inerrant. What it's saying is it was inerrant in its original form. So the question that we need to ask is not that the copies, are they inerrant, but are they accurate to the original? The original was, inaccurate, was accurate, inerrant. Do we have copies that are accurate to that? And by that, the cool thing is, is that we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts to compare. And so imagine if you, you know, get a story from two or three people, there's a couple discrepancies. Well, then, you know, Maybe you're like, oh, what really happened? But if you interview like, you know, 10,000 people and 9,987 of them all say the same thing, you'd be like, yeah, I think those 13 are probably the ones that are off, right? So by the wealth of manuscripts helps us to understand that we have an accurate copy of God's word. And there are, there are some certain discrepancies. I don't, I'm not gonna say that they're not, but here's the thing that you can be encouraged by. If you were to stack up, list out all the discrepancies in all the manuscripts, do you know what you would find? 99% of those discrepancies are all spelling variances. They're not different words, they're just spelled differently. You know, kind of like the British love to throw that O-U, you know, in, and the kind of British, and we're like, 
We don't have time for that. We're just going to go with the O, right? And so um, sometimes, you know, we're like copying, uh, we're setting up the slides and every once in a while an OU sort of slips in that because our, our uh, Australian friends or, you know, British friends are kind of writing and, and they'll like favorite. Um, they kind of add some of that, right? It's still the same word. It's favorite. It just, you know, doesn't have that extra U in there. And so that would be an example of a spelling. So 99% of the discrepancies are merely spelling variances. The other 1%, do not affect any major theological theme or teaching or doctrinal issue whatsoever. They're like minor words here and there. And again, none of them affect any core doctrine or teaching that we would say. So I think what we can do then is we can stand back with confidence and we can say we have accurate copies of the original writings of those authors that penned the original words of God. And so we have this accurate. But then you kind of ask the question, well, what about then our copy, right? This wasn't written in English. John didn't write, <laughs> didn't write in English, so how do we get to English? Well, that's where, again, translation comes in, and this is a translation of those copies. So it was recorded, recorded, copied, 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 and now we get to compare all those, know that we have an accurate copy, then we translate it into English. The version that we use here on Sunday mornings at City on a Hill is the English standard version. The reason we've chosen this version is intentional. We didn't just kind of you know, pick the ones that had the coolest covers, although they do have some pretty cool covers. Um, the English standard version is a word-for-word -word translation, and it's a, a readable word-for-word -word translation. Some word-for-word -word translations can get a little clunky, and they're like hard to... So the ESV has tried to really kind of bridge the gap of readability with accuracy on that word-for-word -word translation. That's why you'll never... Like, I might reference the New Living Translation. I don't think it's a bad translation, but it's a paraphrase. In paraphrasing, there's a lot of, there's a lot of interpretation that happens. I'm not going to preach from that. I'm not saying you shouldn't read it. It's like, you know, for a quick reading or something like that, it's kind of maybe bring some fresh things. But if you want to study, if you want to know accurately what the words say, having a word-for-word -word translation like the ESV is a good one. That's the reason that we don't use the King James Version is because, one, it's not super readable, especially the original King James, but the King James was translated from um, very late Greek manuscripts in the New Testament. The Old Testament was translated from the Greek Septuagint, which is a translation from the Hebrew. So you have a translation from Hebrew to Greek, and then that is what they use to then translate to the King James. That's why there's some variance between the King James and some of the newer translations. Well, the newer translations have more manuscripts to draw from. They know which ones are the earliest and all of that. I share all that. Again, I chase that rabbit hole. Why? Why do I take those minutes out of our sermon for that? Is because I want you with confidence to feel like, man, when I'm holding this, I'm holding the word of God. Right? Like we can have confidence in that. Because if we can't, if, like if, there's, if it's all just subject to like interpretation and translation and, and ac inaccuracy, then, then what are we doing here? Right? Like this is a waste of time. And so that's why I think it's just so important when we come across something like that and we see that, we understand that doesn't give me pause. Be like, wait, wait a minute, why are they taking... That actually increases my confidence in the text that they've now taken steps to make sure that it's more accurate. That verse four isn't in there. They found it long after the verse numbers were found. Otherwise, they would have just taken it out altogether. But the verse numbers were already in place. And they're like, well, we can't do that. We can't, like, we can't just bump everything forward one verse. That's going to be super confusing. And so they just omitted that and hope that as pastors are preaching it, that you're just not going to see it. But I'm pointing it out and taking the time to, to do that. We're going to come across this again, and I'm saving us some time. Um, but in John chapter 8, there's the story of the woman caught in adultery. 
That's in brackets in your Bible. Um, we're, we may touch on it, but we're probably going to end up like skipping that as much as I love that story, and it's such an important story. The reason is, is because that story didn't show up on the scene in manuscripts, you want to know when? Till 400 A.D. None of the manuscripts before 400 A.D. have that. So we can be pretty confident that that was not in John's original gospel writing. And so we don't want to study it as the word of God. Is it a true story? Perhaps. Is it helpful? Yeah, I mean, I love that story. But is it the word inspired, inerrant word of God? I I don't think so. So we're going to come across that in a bit. And we'll we'll get to that when when we do. Let's get back to the man that was by the pool. Hopefully that was helpful for you. Some of you already know that. Some of you, I think... Maybe needed to hear that this morning. Again, I want you to have confidence in the scriptures that we're studying here this morning. Well, this man was invalid for 38 years and Jesus came and saw him there and asked him this question. Anytime you see Jesus ask a question, you gotta know something. Jesus doesn't just ask questions to like make small talk. He always has a purpose for his questions. And most of the time, his questions are more for the person that he's asking the question to rather than for him trying to receive information from them, right? So the question he's asking to this man is, do you want to be healed? Now he's not asking, like he's not trying to figure out, oh man, do you, do you really want to? If you, if you do, I guess I can. He's really asking him in his heart, do you desire this? Is this what you are after? Are you willing to do what it takes? Do you desire to be healed? Now, to a question like that, I would expect to get the same answer that I get oftentimes from my teenage daughters. Yeah, duh. Like, of course. What do you think I'm doing here? He sort of says that, right? The sick man answered him. He says, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, this guy gets kind of beat up by the commentaries. Uh, we're going to see later um, in verse 14, it seems to indicate that perhaps he was in his spot because of some sin that he had done or committed like earlier in his life. We, we don't totally know that, but it appeared that he has no friends. So what he's trying to do when that water is stirred up, again, superstition, thinks that there's an angel that's at work there. He's trying to win the scooching contest, right? He's got to stay close and he's kind of scooching over because he can't, he can't walk. He has no one to carry him. So he's got to scooch himself into that water before anyone else. And he's like, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. See, Jesus, before he's going to heal him, he's doing a work in his heart. He's asking him, this question, his great concern for his human heart is, do you want to be healed? Do you, do you desire this? Do you desire healing? And to that, the answer is yes. Okay, if you desire healing, do you understand, do you acknowledge that you can't do it on your own? And to that, the answer is yes. The man says, I, I, I can't get there in time and no one will help me. I need someone to help me. I can't do it on my own. The third question is sort of inferred in what Jesus says. Do you believe that I can do it? Do you believe that I can heal you? Because notice what Jesus says. He tells him, he says, get up, take your bed and walk. That right there was a moment of decision for this man. Is he going to try to get up for the first time in 38? I mean, those those legs have not worked in a long, long time. And at that moment, does he believe that Jesus can, that Jesus will, that Jesus is healing him? Jesus is calling him to have faith And in having that faith, we just talked about faith last week. What does faith do? Faith acts in obedience. And so in this moment, what does the man do? He does. At once the man was healed, he took up his bed and he walked. He acted in faith to the call that Jesus had given him. He trusted him. 
And here's the thing that I think the question that the text is asking even us this morning as we talk about Jesus' care, his concern for human hearts, you have to know this, that Jesus has care and concern for your human heart. He sees you in your place that you're in. He understands the length of time that you've been in your current trial or he sees the trials that you have walked with or walked through. He sees the trials that are yet to come and he cares, he is concerned. Jesus has care for your human heart. That question, see John, the word that he uses for healing for, is, is, is synonymous and often interchangeable with salvation. Not just do you wanna be healed, he's asking the man, do you wanna be saved? Do you need rescuing? Do you wanna be rescued? And so I think the same question is being asked to us today and he would ask you, do you want to be healed? Do you desire to be saved today? Do you desire for God to work a powerful work in your heart in this place? Because then I think the progression is the same. Do you know that you can't do it on your own? That you can't heal yourself? That you can't save yourself? Do you know that you need help with that? And then the third question is the same. Do you believe that Jesus is and able to heal and save today? You see, the promise that Scripture has for us is those who are in Christ Jesus are saved those who are in Christ Jesus are healed. Now here in this moment, we're talking about physical healing, but I think Jesus is using this for far more. He's talking about spiritual healing. He's talking about mending a broken heart, resurrecting a heart that is dead and far from the Lord. He is doing this work in his heart and he wants to do that in us and in you. And I said that when we see the heart of Christ, we see the heart of the Father. Notice that this man did nothing to achieve this. Right? The only thing that he brought to the equation was the sin that required Jesus to save him. But what he's doing here in this moment is he's showing us that Jesus has a heart for those who are far, who have nothing to offer. And the same would be true for you even today, that Jesus has a heart for you. He desires for you to be saved and he's done that to rescue you. Even though you're far from him, you have nothing to offer him. He desires to heal and to save you. That is the work that Jesus, and, and we should be encouraged by this. We're reminded of the, the caring, tender heart of our Savior. We see that Jesus has great concern for human hearts. He knows the things that we're walking through, and he cares about them. He wants to work in them. Let's continue on. Let's look at our passage again. Let's continue from verse 9. It says, And once this man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day, on the day that that happened, that he was healed and began to walk, it was the Sabbath. I didn't hear the gasp that would have been there at the first reading. It would have been like, <gasps> like it was the Sabbath, okay? Like that's, that's a problem here. This is, problem is coming. Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me that said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Jesus isn't trying to attract attention to himself yet, so he kind of got out of there. The man didn't even know who it was who had healed him, but he's being confronted about this, which I just think we need to pause and sort of look back, like how weird is that, right? How much are they missing what is happening? Anyone else see like something that's kind of missing from the, hey, you're walking. What's going on with that, man? Like you haven't walked in like 40 years. How's that going for you? Like that's not what he says. Like, hey, what are you doing carrying your bed? The reason that they were so upset about him carrying the bed is because that would have been considered work 
And it was the Sabbath. So, hey, man, what are you doing? I'm super pumped that you're like walking, but why are you carrying that thing? And he's like, dude, the guy who just healed my legs told me that I need to walk and take up my bed. Who is that? I don't know. Verse 14, he continues. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Here's the second thing we see as we get to know Jesus, we get to know the Father. Jesus has great concern for human hearts. He has little concern for human laws. You see, the the Jews were all about protecting and, and honoring the Sabbath, which is good. That's something that God instituted. It's helpful for us to be reminded what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath was something that God instituted for his people as a rhythm of rest and a rhythm of celebration and worship. He instituted after he rescued his people out of the hands of Pharaoh. God led his people out of this, uh, you know, under the tyranny of the Pharaoh. They were slaves. Their lives were not their own. He rescued them, brought them to a new land, and he made them his people. And in doing so, he gave them a way to live. He gave them a law. And part of that law, one of the Ten Commandments, is to uh, observe and honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy. And then furthermore, later, he adds, like, what does that mean? And one of the things that you did to keep the Sabbath holy was you didn't work on Sabbath. And, and, and there were some other regulations that he had. But see, here's what happened is the Jewish people, they, they wanted to make sure that they did that, that they observed Sabbath. And so um, if this is where the line is, if, if, the, if the regulation that, that God put out is do not work, and if I step off of this, I'm, I'm crossing the line, what they did is they built up a hedge to protect themselves. And so they put the line way back here. And they said, if we stay way back here, then we have no worries of ever crossing over that. It sounds good, maybe, you know, in, in, in thinking, but in practice, what it became was this arduous burden for the people of God that became about all of these little rules and regulations and loopholes about how they could, God just said, don't work. They took that as, okay, let's define what work is. You want to know what work is? I think it's helpful for us to have some pictures of just how ridiculous it had become. Um, I find that, you know, the older my children get, the more that gray hairs are starting to appear. I know I hide them um, fairly well. I think, at least I think so. Maybe not. Tell me otherwise. Um, but, you know, my beard, I'm seeing more and more grays coming out. I might be tempted on a, on a Sabbath day to want to pluck out one of those gray hairs. However, if I wanted to keep the, the Mishnah, the, the rules, the hedge behind the work, I can't even pluck out that hair because that would be considered work on the Sabbath. Um, if I wanted to carry a scarf from one room to the other, maybe it's upstairs and I want it to be downstairs, on the Sabbath, I couldn't do that. However, the loophole is if I wear it, then I can bring it. So I can't carry it in my hands. What I have to do is wrap it around me and then I can walk down, get to the new room, then I can unwrap it, put it down. I haven't done any work because I was wearing it. Just carrying it doesn't work. See, that's kind of what I think the confusion was. They see this man, he's probably got it under his arms or maybe, you know, he's kind of carrying it. They're like, what are you doing? You're carrying your bed. See, they probably wouldn't have approached him if he'd been wearing it, you know, like a, like a Jedi Knight or something. He's like wearing it like a, like a cloak or some sort of, you know, he's kind of on him and then he's not doing work because it would have been like a garment to him. See, this is the kind of things. I mean, one of the things was you couldn't travel 
um, uh, so far from your household. You were given a thousand yards from your household. So the way that they got around that was is, is they would extend a, a string. You could tie a rope at the end of your street for another thousand yards. Now you've just extended your household Everywhere that that, 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 that that string is, that's part of your household. So you had 1,000 yards. Then you could go 1,000 yards beyond that. So now you had a radius of like 2,000 yards that you, could, that you could travel because you couldn't go more than 1,000 yards from your household. One of the rules that, that God had given, this was a rule, not to like part of the work, he defined it as cultivating soil. You weren't to cultivate soil on the Sabbath. So the mission or the way that they, the regulation they said is you gotta be very careful where you spit. Because if you spit on the ground and then you don't want, you know, you want to leave spit on the ground, so you take your foot and kind of rub it in, that would be considered cultivating soil. So if you have to spit, be careful where you spit because if you need to rub it in the ground, you're going to cultivate soil. So you could be not observing Sabbath. You could be breaking the Sabbath law by spitting in the wrong place is kind of the spot that it had gotten to. And so here's the thing that, that I think we just have to understand. Jesus has great concern for human hearts. These laws were not responding to humans as humans. Like it, it was taking it further than God had ever intended. You see, the reason that God gave Sabbath, it, it looked back to the days when he, or to the day when he had rested. It says that he created on the first six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. God instituted Sabbath rest so that we would have a rhythm of stopping, slowing, celebrating, and worshiping. What they had now taken it to was just this convoluted system of all these minute laws and details and things like that and had so left the freeing, joy-giving, worship-producing rest that God had tried to institute for his people to the point that they see a man who was healed after 40 years of being lame, nearly 40 years of being lame, and the first thing they could say is, hey, why are you carrying your bed? They missed it. They missed the heart of what he was doing. Notice verse 16. That was why they began to persecute Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. Let's be clear. Jesus was before the law perfect. He never broke any of God's Sabbath laws. He broke all of the human Sabbath laws, right? They were always, hey, why are you doing that? He's like, because God didn't tell me not to right? Like that's his approach. He's like, I'm not here to keep your laws. I'm here to keep the laws of my father. And he wasn't expecting that man to either. He told him. So it wasn't wrong for Jesus to heal. And it wasn't wrong for the man to take up his bed and to go. See, they missed it. They missed it. And at this point, I just think that we need to be very careful that we don't miss it that we don't get caught up into our own system of rules and regulations and laws and things that we expect. And we might read some of these, you know, we, we hear some of that and we're like, oh, that's ridiculous. Like cultivating, cultivating soil. I mean, I've, got, I've been in Israel and I've gotten on the wrong elevator. You can't make a spark um, in, in, on Sabbath. And so there's Sabbath elevators that stop on every floor. That's not great if you're on like the 10th floor of a hotel and you get on that elevator and you're like, oh man, this is gonna be a while. Because it stops, every floor opens up. So you don't have to press any buttons. I mean, there's all these loopholes. We see some of that stuff and we're like, man, it seems like kind of, kind of crazy. I can't, believe, I can't believe that that's the expectation. But you know what? We do the exact same thing. Can I give you an example from my childhood? I grew up, some of the churches that we were at tended to be a little bit more on maybe the legalistic side of things. And uh, I'll never forget, I was in grade school. And uh, in the summer, um, the windows of the church would often be open. And there was a, a house nearby the church. And uh, there was a man that loved to mow 
every Sunday morning. And the perfect time that he would mow is like right when our service was starting. And so we'd be sitting there trying to meet and then outside we'd hear like, you know, like the mower's kind of going and that sort of thing. And I'll just, I don't know what the conversations was. I don't know everything that happened, but all I know is the takeaway that I received from the adults in my life as I heard people in the church talking about it. It was enough of a thing that I knew that, man, that guy, he's doing something, like he's mowing on the Lord's day was kind of what it was the perspective that I got. And that you're not supposed to do that. And, you know, what is he doing doing that? It's carried on all the way till later in, 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 you know, as I'm an adult and now I have like my house and I'm mowing my first lawn. And my whole thought was I better get mowing on like other days because I don't want to mow on the Lord's day. I got to make sure that I mow, you know, the other six days to kind of keep this day holy. We've sort of ported some of the, the Sabbath things over to that. Some of you maybe have grown up that. Some of you maybe even still think that. But I came to the realization later as I looked through my pages of scripture, I don't see any command for, I mean, first of all, the Lord's Day isn't even Sabbath. Like, we should have Sabbath rest. I, I've preached on this many times before. If you wanna study more, I can kind of point you back to some of our sermons or some great books. Like, I think a rhythm of weekly rest is good for us. I think we should still carry and capture much of what Sabbath has. But the Levitical sub, sub, Sabbath laws are not applicable for us in that way. Like we should stop, we should pause, we should celebrate, we should worship, we should rest. You should pause, you should hit the off button on your phone. Like, I don't know when the last time your phone took a break. You should, you should do that. It's good for your soul. But we gotta be very careful what we define as work and what we define as rest. Because to be honest with you, can I just tell you where I've come to now in my theology and understanding? For me, I do, the work I do is very different from mowing. So I love to mow. I love putting those little lines in my grass right? Like I crisscross them. I got a whole plan with that. If you offer to come mow my grass, I probably won't let you because I really like my lines. And you might do good lines too, but I just don't trust you, okay? Like I, I want my lines in the grass. And for me, it's actually like kind of relaxing and sort of enjoyable. And, and usually I'm pretty wiped out from Sunday morning and ministry and that. And so sometimes doing something with a little bit of activity on Sunday afternoon actually really feeds my soul. I'll put on music, worship music. I'll put on podcast or the scriptures. I have headphones and I'll listen to that and I'll just go out and just kind of, Bree's like, man, you really enjoy going. I'm like, I love mowing the grass. Like, it's just like a little moment. I'm just like me and my mower and I've got my, my headphones and I'm just like enjoying. It's so relaxing for me. I'm telling you, like, I ported that in and I thought that somehow, like, me mowing the grass was not honoring the Lord. But I, I think the opposite. Like, I think I can. I think I can mow the grass and still rest and still worship on the Lord's day. You see, I think we just have to be careful with that. I go into all of that to say we have to be careful about some of the extra rules, the extra expectations that we put on ourselves and that we put on others. Because sometimes those are the hurdles, those are the things that keep people away from the saving knowledge of Jesus. They see all of that and they're like, I don't know if I can play that whole game. I don't know if I can do all of that. When what we find in Jesus is not more burden, more laws, we find grace and a desire to keep the laws. Now let me be very clear. God has said so many things that we should do. This book is full of do's and don'ts. All of them are for our good. We've said it many times before. Every time God says don't, what he's really saying is don't hurt yourself. Right? If God says to avoid it, it's because it's gonna bring you harm. If he says to do it, it's because it's gonna bring you good. And so we should do, we wanna be obedient, but we do it not to earn, we do it because God has earned for us. We do it out of joy. And so I'm just telling you, little David in that little church, the 
the perspective I got is, man, that's too bad for that guy. But you know what I never heard? Like, hey, we should, we should really pray for him. Or how about this? Why don't we go invite him in? Like, I think that's like a win-win, right? Like he comes in and the mowing stops. Like he gets to hear about the gospel and we get like a little quieter during church. But I just never got the sense that we were so concerned about him. We were more sort of, I can't believe he's doing that every Sunday. He's gotta be like, he's doing it just to like mess with us. He doesn't like us or something like that. Now, I don't know, maybe that was happening. But my perspective was that, oh, we care more about whether or not someone's mowing on the Lord's day than do they know the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and are we actively trying to invite them into this? Listen, we don't relax on any part of the law that God has given. We're not relaxing. What we're doing is we're not adding to it. That's what Jesus is concerned about. He has little concern for human laws. They missed it, and they missed what God was doing in this, in this heart. So all of this, all of this culminates into this. It shows us Jesus' concern for the heart of the Father. Jesus' concern for the heart of the Father. Let, let, let me show it to you in Scripture. Let's go back to verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, why did, Jesus, why did they want to kill him? Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. If you think for a second that Jesus didn't make the claim that he is God, he for sure did. Like that's what was giving him in so much trouble. He was not only saying that he knew God as father, that God was his father, but he was saying he was equal with God. That verse there in verse 17, my father is working until now, I am working. He's like, listen, the work of the father I'm now doing, I am showing you the work of the father. He's like, if you see me working, you're seeing the father working. And so here's what we see in Jesus, that Jesus' concern shows us the heart of the father. Jesus' concern shows us the heart of the father. Jesus' heart was for this man, and it was for these people. He wanted them to see and to know and to be saved that's why he said to him, he said, sin no more. Again, we can maybe assume that because Jesus said this, that maybe there was a reason why. It's like part of his sin was it caused, his sinful choices has caused him to be lame. We're gonna be careful that we don't take this too far, that we don't apply everything to that. The disciples did that. They saw a man that was blind. They're like, well, was it his sin or his parents' sin that caused him to be blind? And Jesus was like, neither. You see, there's multiple reasons why we encounter trials or difficulties. One of it might be because of the sinful choices of other people. You might be walking through a trial. You might experience pain in your life because of the other people's sinful choices. I've sat with, with, with spouses and, 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 and seen the choices of um, oftentimes the husband uh, choosing to look at and to uh, go after pornography, causing pain and heartache in the, in the life of his spouse. There's nothing that the spouse did to cause that. It was the choice of her husband that did that. Someone might choose to uh, drink and then get behind the wheel of a car and then swerve into the other lane, causing a collision. You might experience an accident because somebody else got behind. Like they chose a sinful choice. You didn't do anything to do that. It's somebody else's sinful choices. Sometimes that's the reason we walk through difficult things is because other people choose sin. But sometimes no sin has been chosen at all. When a tornado moves through an area, it's not just wiping out the unrighteous homes in its path and leaving the righteous ones alone. Like, Righteous and unrighteous, it's, it's moving right through and it's just 
what that is, that's a result. Well, in some ways, it's the result of someone else's sinful choice. It's the result of this world that is broken by the sinful choices of our first parents, Adam and Eve, right? Sin entered the world, broke this world. And so the things that we encounter, the things that we experience is just a broken world. That's why Jesus came to set things right and to do it. But we also have to miss this. We don't want to explain away and say, well, you know, it's just this broken world. Sometimes the pain, the difficulty, the trials that we experience, the pain that we walk through is the result of our sin, is the result of foolish choices. And sometimes God allows us to walk through consequences for that. That's always a good question to ask is, is there anything I've done to cause this thing? And if you have, if God says that you have, then what he's calling you to is repentance so that he might forgive you and restore that relationship. I've watched, I've watched as, as couples or individuals have struggled with, with finances or different things. And the reality is, is that they were choosing sinfully with which and how and what they were doing. with like, And so what they were experiencing was all sorts of conflict and trouble and trials. And then once they just started like kind of getting on God's page with like, okay, this is how he says to steward my money. And this is how he's called me to be generous with it. And this, now all of a sudden, like all these consequences, all these difficulties start to be fixed and go away. It's amazing what we do when we follow God's plan, how it it minimizes some of that. Again, I'm not saying that everything you might, you might do handle your finances perfectly, yet you encounter something that just blows it up. Again, fallen world. But in this case, he's worried about his heart, shows the heart of the father. He says to him, see your well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. He's calling him to a life of obedience to faith. Now, is he gonna live perfectly? No way. But is he gonna live with intentionality? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. That's what Jesus is calling him to. And so I just wanted to unpack that because sometimes when we encounter, we're like, why am I walking through this? We can be certain one of the reasons you're walking through is because God wants to teach you and shape you through it. But it might not be because of your sin. It might, but it might not. It might be the result of just the sinful world or other, other sinful choices that brings that to that place. But here's what we see is that Jesus has the heart of the Father. He shows us the heart of the Father. And so I wanna just kind of go back to that question I asked earlier that Jesus is asking us, do you want to be healed? You can be. Listen, I know that there are many in this room and we walk with many people that experience even physical problems. This is a physical problem. And the promise is this. God's word is clear that for all who in, are in Christ Jesus, healing is for certain. For certain. God will heal everybody who is in Christ Jesus. Here's the catch. That healing might not come this side of eternity. You can pray with confidence. You can pray with boldness. You can ask God to heal you with this side of eternity. And sometimes he does, but sometimes he doesn't. But the promise is this, that in Christ Jesus, anyone, anyone who has received the free gift of life that Jesus purchased through his blood shed on that cross will receive eternal life. And when that day comes, the, lame, the lame will walk, the blind will see, the mute will speak, the deaf will be able to hear, every tear will be wiped away, every, uh, every ailment will be fixed. I mean, all of the pain, all of the things that are going away for all who are in Christ Jesus. And so with confidence, I can say, do you want to be healed? If the answer is yes, then you can't do it on your own. Do you believe Jesus can? And someday he will, he will. Some of us, we experience that healing even starting now, but in eternity, it will come. And so listen, church, knowing the future, knowing what is coming, we can have confidence and a hope and a peace in this life now. This is what Jesus is showing us. He's showing us the heart of the father because God loves you like a father. We're out of time, and so I don't want to, I can't go into this as much as I would love to, but I'm just telling you, God loves you like a father. The first time I held my oldest daughter, 
my heart like nearly exploded. I was like, I didn't know I could love something like so deeply, so quickly. I'm like, I've known you for like 40 seconds and I already would, would seriously fight anybody like that got in my, like I would do anything for you. And then she like poop. But it was like, you know, it's just like this moment. I just felt like my heart exploding. Like if you're a dad, if you're a parent, like you know the love that you have for your children. I was so worried when we had our second child, Ava. And I was like, man, can my heart do that again? I'm like, I already, I don't know if there's more room. And then I held her and I'm like, oh my goodness, it's there again. You know, I love her so much. You see, I think God has given us this picture, the love of a parent, the love of a father, so that we would know and understand. Listen, many of us have had poor examples in our earthly fathers. Some of us have had amazing earthly fathers, others of us not so much. But God is not a better version of our earthly father. He's the perfection of a father. And he has adopted, it says, all who are in Christ Jesus, he has invited into his family as sons, as daughters. If you know Christ Jesus, you have a father who loves you perfectly He would do anything for you. He did do anything. He sent his son for you. He loves you. You are a daughter of the king. You have been adopted into the family. And so in knowing Jesus, you get to know the heart of your heavenly dad. And he loves you like a dad. And so this is such a healing, helpful, needed truth for us today because we need to know and recognize and and respond to God as father. That was the primary way that Jesus spoke about God was as his Father, why? Because we need to know him as Father. Let's pray. God, we give you praise, we give you thanks for your kindness, for your love, for your grace toward us. And God, it's in passages like this that we get a glimpse into your tender heart toward your kids. God, I pray for anyone here this morning who has not yet received your healing power of salvation, Lord, that they would do that they have but to confess and believe that you are the Lord, that you have died on their behalf, God, that they can receive forgiveness in you. Jesus, thank you for the healing power that we find in you. Lord, we respond to you as our Father, our perfect Father. God, in a day and an age when churches, even, Lord, Christians are Moving away from that language, God, that's helpful language for us. That's helpful understanding, God. That's how you revealed yourself as our Father. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your kindness toward us. We thank you for your promise to heal. We long and look forward to that day when with this man, we'll get to say, Lord, thank you for the way that you have healed, that you have mended our broken hearts. Jesus, we respond to you now. In your name, amen.